All right, good morning, everyone. Matthew 4 is where we're at. Take your Bibles. Let's go over there today. We're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, next week, we'll begin a um, new series called Get Real. And uh, it's a series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the longest uh, recorded sermon of Jesus in the Bible. And that'll be a great um, time in the Word together. Some pretty hard-hitting stuff, some real practical stuff. So uh, bring your conviction seatbelts, please. It'll be uh, a good time as we talk about um, hard-hitting topics um, like money and anger and judging, lust, just a host of things that are really practical. So get real. Starts uh, next week. So we're going to get real next week, all right? So uh, let's uh, take a look at Matthew 4, verses 12 to 25. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, we ask that in uh, Jesus' name today that you would use this text to illumine our minds and hearts to what it means to follow you. Lord, I pray for just... um, simplicity today a passage that has a lot of different things in it and at the end of the day the one thing that we need to learn from this passage is the call to be like jesus and all the other labels that we put on it all the other things that we try and do to communicate at the end of the day it just comes down to following jesus christ and being like him so lord we pray that you'd help us to know you today in the text that you jesus would be loved uh, by our people in new ways because of our time spent in this passage and that you would cause our hearts to be motivated to be more like you and lord that is something that only you by your spirit can do and so we ask you to do it and to do it through this passage in your name lord in jesus name amen So last week I left you hanging intentionally as to what the fifth point was of uh, the four points previously mentioned regarding the temptation of Jesus. I did so not to either one, make you angry, or two, to get you to come back, but really three, because I see a direct linkage between the temptation of Jesus and one of the application points in our passage this morning. Let me explain. I see that the temptation of Christ, um, along with the baptism of Jesus, leads us well into this next section of Scripture on what it means to follow Jesus and the beginning of His public ministry. The baptism of Jesus, if you remember, was about the inauguration of Christ's ministry and His identification with human beings. In other words, it was about the time when God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And He enters the waters of baptism to demonstrate that He's going to enter our world in order to be able to minister to us. If you didn't fall more in love with the humanity and the compassion of Jesus because of that sermon, something's wrong. Because the baptism of Christ is all about this beautiful, glorious reality of who Christ is in the full manifestation of the Son of God and also the full manifestation of the Son of Man. And then we move into the temptation of Christ where we saw the devil throw absolutely everything at him. And in the temptation of Christ, we see that Jesus is validated in his complete obedience to the Father. So if the baptism of Christ inaugurates him and identifies him, the temptation of Jesus validates him as the Son of God, that he is able to fully obey the Father. 
And this then leads us to the launching of Jesus' ministry. So it goes from inauguration to identification to validation, and now the ministry of Christ is launched. And I think that Matthew puts these things in this order for a very specific reason. And the reason I think that he does this is so that we would see that before Jesus launches his public ministry, that he would be identified as the Son of God, identify with human beings, and be validated so that we would know this is the kind of person who you are following. In other words, the life of Christ is as important as his death. I don't want to diminish his death at all, but I also want you to realize there's a reason why Jesus became a man. There's a reason why he was tempted. There's a reason why he went into the waters of baptism. And the reason that he does all of this is so that we could see what it means to follow him. What it means to be like him. What it means to walk like he walks. To talk like he talks. Ooh, almost tipped my pulpit over. To, uh, to talk like, I'm excited about this. To talk about how he talks. To knock over pulpits like he knocks over pulpits. To do those sorts of things. To see how Jesus acts and interacts with his people. And at the end of the day to say, look, I want to be like that. So all the other labels that we put on this thing that we call Christianity... All the, all the complicating things that relate to our theology and our good thinking when it comes to our doctrine. I want to make it just really simple today. Okay? And make it really simple. It says, here's the call. I want you to be like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It means that you are going to be a follower of Christ. You're going to be like him. You be like him in your marriage, you're gonna be like him when you raise kids, you're gonna be like him in the marketplace, you're gonna be like him dealing with lost people. That at the end of the day, people look at you and could say, you know what, you're like, you're like Jesus. And even though you know that you're not, that it means that you follow him in a really unique and powerful way. So, last week we saw this, the temptation of Christ. We saw four things. One, that the temptation of Christ, the purpose of it was to show us divinely designed testing. Two, to uncover the schemes of the devil. Three, to highlight the enormous value of the word. And four, to demonstrate Jesus' sympathy. Here's the fifth one. And it's this, to provide an example to follow. One of the reasons that Jesus was tempted as a human being was to show us how to live. It was to show us how to defeat the devil. That's part of the reason. To show us how to defeat the devil. What did Jesus do to defeat temptation? I'll use the scriptures. He relied on the Spirit. He, he resisted by the power of God. There's the sense that the temptation of Christ is given to us so that we can know this is how you, as a human being, fight the enemy. But there's a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this, that the temptation of Jesus is to show us what He is like and to show us that He became human in order so that we would know how to follow Him. So that we could see Him in the text and know Him, and then love Him, and want to be like Him. So the reason why Matthew gives us these narratives, the reason why he gives us the story of Jesus' baptism, and then the story of His temptation, is to show us what He's like, so that we know about Him, and that we fall in love with Him, and then we want to be like Him. And that's the aim. This morning is not just for you to have information in your head about who Christ is, but rather that you would see Him, see how He interacts with people, that you would love Him, and the love that you'd have for Him would create this yearning to be like Him. So... The reason why our mission as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus is because knowledge alone doesn't help you become like Him. 
Knowledge is part of the equation, but if knowledge then reaches the heart and your heart enlarges and you grow in your love and your affection for Him, your love for Christ will eclipse other things and then you will be like Him. So, the call to follow Jesus is essentially an invitation to know Him, to love Him, and to be like Him. That's what we're going to talk about this morning is this definition of what it means to follow Jesus. To know Him, to love Him, and to be like Him. To be able to see the way that He acts, to be able to watch how He interacts with people. And, and we're going to move after the Sermon on the Mount, which is some great content, and, and towards the fall we'll move into the stories of how Jesus interacted with people. And we're going to see what He does, and see how He talks, and see how He acts. And the whole purpose of that is so that we can be like Him. So discipleship is essentially not a call to join a movement, not to agree to a document, to take a class. It is a call to follow somebody, a real person, to be like them, to emulate someone. And this is innately human. We want to be like people we love. Um, Remember when you were a kid, you wanted to be like the people you loved. We have... I have children in my home who want to be like me. They love their dad. They know their dad. They want to be like their dad. Right now, one of the things that's interesting around our dinner table is that Savannah wants to be like everybody else, and she wants to lead in prayer for the meal. And that has led to some really long pre-dinner prayers. And she feels it necessary to pray for everyone in her world, including the dogs and cats she's met for the day. And the other day, as she was um, praying, she prays for her brothers by name, and she opens her eyes or one eye and looks at them to be sure she can remember their names. She goes around the room, I pray for Jeremiah, and he's like, oh. and then uh, Joseph, and he says yes, and then Hayden, and, and then she stalls out. It's a little, everyone panics, like, oh, quick, feed her a name. And in one, one meal, she was praying around the circle, and uh, she said, I pray for my mom and dad, and thank you for the food. And then she said, and, and I pray for Dora. And, I just <laughs> and then she, she peeked and she goes, Daddy, I pray for Dora. And I'm like, okay, for the record, Daddy does not pray for Dora, okay, just for the record. But she wants to be like us. She wants to be, she loves us, she wants to be like us. And that's innately human, right? You, you, the people you know, the people you love, you want to be like them. So following Christ is no different. And this is why, church, he became human. So that he would give us a pattern to follow. So that he would give us an example for us to see. So I want to take this text and I see this bridge from the temptation of Christ, the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus into what it means to follow Jesus. I want to show you this from verses 12 to 25. Three things here about following Jesus. The first is this, that following Jesus means being light in the midst of darkness. Look at verse 12. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea... Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. There's a number of things to note from this passage. The first is this, that Jesus' ministry began after the arrest of John the Baptist. Look at verse 12. 
When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. What's happening here? Well, John was arrested by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was Herod the Great's son. Well, Herod Antipas had a thing for Herodias, the wife of his half-brother. And they divorced their spouses and then got married. Well, John, being the kind of guy that he was, saw this and was outraged. And so while he went around saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he also slipped in this thing about Herod Antipas and Herodias and how awful their relationship was. And John just kept talking about it and talking about it and called Herod out on it. And so he got arrested. And by the way, if you fast forward in the the book of Matthew, you also find that later on, Herod Antipas ends up cutting John's head off because of this issue. So... Something is going on here where there's this environment of a crackdown that seems to be happening. And Jesus likely was concerned about a broader crackdown. And so he fled to the city of Capernaum because Jesus was associated with John the Baptist. He goes to the northern regions of Israel and goes to the city of Capernaum, which was by the Sea of Galilee in the region called Galilee. Now, Capernaum is significant according to Matthew, because it's linkage to the prophecy in Isaiah 9. Let me explain. Galilee was in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, and it was this um, fertile region, and it was fairly well populated. Galilee was known as a region, the crossroads that went to many other areas. For example, you could take Galilee and go to Phoenicia in the north, Syria to the east, or Samaria to the southeast. The idea was this, that that Galilee was at the crossroads to go anywhere, where in southern uh, Israel, it was the crossroads to nowhere, right? So you go south, there's not much but desert on your way to Egypt. You go north to Galilee, there's all sorts of opportunities. There's fertile land and all that's involved in this region. The result of this was that this region of Israel was very diverse because people came from all over the world to live there. And in some cases, other rulers had come and taken over the area of Galilee. So while the region of southern um, Israel had known a few rulers over the year, Galilee had known many. The effect of this was that the region of Galilee, particularly the city of um, Capernaum, was known as a dark region. It was ethnically and religiously extremely diverse. And just about any new thought that was had would go through the region of Galilee. So they were constantly open to new ideas. And this, there was a sense that if you lived in the south of Israel, that those in the north were not as enlightened as you were in the south. Or, to put it this way, the people in the north were the liberals and the people in the south were the conservatives. So there was a sense that, that the, the region of Galilee was a dark region. And it would not have been an inaccurate sense. The religious center was Jerusalem in the south, and Galilee was a region not known for its spiritual vibrancy. So, Matthew cites Jesus' movement to Capernaum as the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. And what does Isaiah 9 says? It's verse 15. He quotes it, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Here it is. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region, and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. So Matthew sees this as nothing less than the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, where Jesus goes to a region that's dark, and as a result, a light is shining on these Gentiles. 
So Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is coming as a light to dark regions. Now, if you think about it, and you know the book of Matthew, you'll know that at the end of the book of Matthew, it concludes with the Great Commission, right? Where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of what? All nations. So Matthew's going to end with this call um, of, of Jesus' words to go to all nations. And it's fascinating to consider that he identifies that Jesus began his ministry bringing light to a dark region. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. So Matthew shows us that Jesus goes to a dark region and shines his own light of himself in this area. And Matthew sees this as significant. I'll explain why in just a minute. Notice last here that Jesus' message is exactly identical to John's. Look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is word for word the same message that John said. So there is the sense that John and Jesus' ministries were parallel, and then John was arrested, and Christ now takes preeminence and declares the exact same message. He says, repent, meaning turn 180 degrees from where you are, change your mind about who God is, about who you are, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that concept of kingdom is that already and not yet sense of the reign of God through Christ in the world. That the reign of God through Christ is coming to the world, therefore repent and get ready. Now how does this relate to being light in darkness? Jesus has appropriately now embraced the spotlight of the kingdom. He's, he, he now owns the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's proclaiming it in a region of Israel that's known for being rejected, being despised, being written off. And isn't that just like Jesus? He is light in the midst of darkness. And what happens is that Jesus, beginning here and all throughout his ministry, as we'll see in the book of Matthew, doesn't really do the normal thing that the religious establishment would anticipate. Instead, Jesus does his work among the lowly and despised people of his day. And therefore, Jesus developed a reputation during his lifetime of ministering to people who other folks wrote off as worthless. Jesus had shocking friends. Look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So understand, Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. The result of this is that when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they didn't do this. Those were the kind of folks you didn't hang out with. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What is Jesus saying? He's saying something very important. That he, by definition, by his example, by his life, by his message, by what he does, Jesus is light in the midst of darkness. He loved the needy. Listen, he loved the outcast. He loved the written off people. He ministers to sinful people. 
The kind of sinful people that most people felt were beyond hope. He was light to everyone, but he was especially light. He was targeted like a spotlight to the deepest and darkest regions of society. And it is no mistake that Jesus starts his ministry in a region known in Israel as being incredibly dark. That is not by accident. There is this sense that Jesus is light in the midst of darkness. And you will see later on in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 15, you are the light of the world. So the call to follow Jesus is that we need to be light like he is light. So here's my question. Do you have any shocking friends? Or do you have to fight like I do this Christian bubble? Do you have any friends that will make other friends uncomfortable that you're friends with them? Do you have any people in your world that you know that other people talk about the fact that you hang out with them? The nerd at the office that everybody can't stand. The neighbor Nazi who lives five doors down. Everybody else talks about. The difficult people. Do you know that God has sent you to be light in the midst of darkness? Do you realize that God brings us people because we of all people have light and he wants us to bring light to the darkness. And therefore, one of the things that we have to constantly fight against is that we have Christian radio stations and Christian books and Christian clubs and Christian organizations. And we could go all week long and never run into any really awful, wicked, sinful people beyond ourselves. (laughs) And I want to tell you that, that... We are called to love the unlovely, to care for the neglected, and to encourage the hopeless. We are called to be like Jesus. And one of the things when I read this passage, I started to think about how often should it be said among us that particular people in even religious establishment kind of circles would ask the question, why do you hang out with such wicked and sinful people? And if that isn't said about us, Are we really following Jesus? Imagine a physician whose practice is failing. It's going in the tank. And when you inquire as to what's going on, he says, the problem is, I just don't like sick people. (laughs) That's the problem. they, They disgust me. I just can't handle being around sick people. And you would say to him, you are a doctor. Your job is sick people. Your business is dealing with sick people. So question, what's the business of the church? What's the business of people who are followers of Jesus? Here's our business. Sinful, hurting people. That's the business of the church. The purpose is not for you to come here and just get more information into your head. And then you can leave so you can be more encouraged and and more happy and more fulfilled. The purpose is for you to come here to learn about Christ, to be filled in love with Him, so you can go and love people who are really hurting, who no one else loves. God calls us to find the people who are hurting and helpless, the people who who challenge the the, 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 the very... 
essence of, of our culture and have the worst problems in life and to be able to say this, this is the reason why we are here, to bring light in the midst of this darkness. The reason, church, why Romans 8 is in the Bible. You know that passage that we know all things work together for good, all the security of the believer. The reason why that is all there is to free us so that we will love radically, speak boldly, and invest deeply, and do so in risky ways. The reason that God has made you secure is not so you can lay in bed at night and not wonder where you're going to go when you die. That's part of it. But the bigger reason is so that you can be like sheep going to the slaughter and not worry about it. You can love people who other people would look at and say, why do you love in those folks? And you keep pouring out and pouring out and pouring out because you know at the end of the day, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. So I was preparing, I was thinking of this old hymn. Remember this one? Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, mighty to save. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Following Jesus means being light in darkness, to know Him, to love Him, to be like Him. That's what it means, to be like Jesus. So the question is this. Here's it. Here it is. Who has God put into your life in order to help you to become like Him? Point number two is on radical change. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I want you to see here, that Jesus calls these men to make radical change. Notice that it's Jesus who does the recruiting. Most rabbis had students come to them and ask them to allow them to have students in their care. But Jesus intentionally calls these men. He invades their normal existence. The same way that he invades or invaded your existence. You realize, don't you, that although you found Jesus, He found you way before you ever found Him? He found you. Maybe in a service, maybe as a kid, He found you. And in that beautiful and undescribable way, He said, follow me. Peter, Andrew, and James, and John are all fishermen. And it's telling that Jesus begins His recruitment of His disciples with unsophisticated and socially unimpressive men. Ever felt uneducated? Ever felt like I'm not as smart as everybody else? All I do is fish, you know? I just throw this net in the water and get this little family business thing that we're running. And Jesus shows up and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's so fascinating to me that he chooses these men. I mean, Peter, James, and John become the inner circle. They don't have big education. He just finds them and they follow him. And and in fact, Acts 4.13 later on will tell us that as, as Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin, they were amazed with their boldness. And the text says that they marveled because they were uncommon and uneducated men. They were country bumpkins. They had no education, no, no background, and yet the text says, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus because of their boldness. 
And Jesus calls these men to follow him with a decisive and unequivocal calling. He's not inviting them to take a pleasant stroll along the seashore, but he's inviting them to costly discipleship. He says to them, follow me. The word means, come here after me. It's a sense of, come here and follow me. Come here, come behind me, come follow me. Jesus is calling them. It's a command, and it's in the present tense, meaning come and continually follow behind me. He's calling them to radical change, calling them to leave their present life and their present purpose and then become part of his kingdom mission. And he calls them to become fishers of men. I love that. He takes them from what they were presently doing, but he adds his kingdom message to it that radically transforms the purpose of their life. And that's what Jesus does for all of us. He takes the normal things that we do and he adds kingdom purpose to them. And instead of being just fishers for fishing and for fishing purposes, we now become fishers of men. That we have our business, but we do it to advance the kingdom. We make money, but we do it to give it away. We sell, but we do it so that we can make much of Christ, not us. We raise children, not so our kids can think that we're great or people can see what a great home we have, but so that the emblem of Christ could be seen through our homes. And we take life and we add kingdom purpose to it. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And notice Peter and Andrew's response. Verse 11, immediately they left their nets and followed him. James and John, the text says, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. They left a family business. And some of you, while you've not left a family business, other businesses have grown while yours hasn't because you refuse to do business without being a disciple of Christ. And don't think that the Lord doesn't know the differential between where you could be and where you are because of the cost of following him. And you have made a great choice. The decisive nature of their decision is mentioned twice. Immediately they followed them. Immediately they left their boats. There's something here about a decisive decision to follow Jesus. There's two things here about being a disciple of Christ I want you to note. The first is this, that to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. I know that sounds so basic and so elementary, but I run into people who think that if I just believe in Jesus if I just know facts and information about Jesus, that that's enough. And I would tell you that to be a Christian means that you are a follower of Jesus. Belief is certainly a part of that, but there's more. It means that you want to be like Jesus. It means that he's invaded your heart. He's taken over. You've pledged allegiance to him. He is now the acting agent in your life. So to say that you believe in Jesus, but you don't follow Jesus is an oxymoron. You know what that word means? <laughs> it's two words that go together that don't match, like jumbo shrimp. Okay, so so to so to so to, so to go together, a follower of Jesus, but I don't. I, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not a follower of Him. That doesn't those, that doesn't work. They're the same thing. To follow Jesus is to be his disciple, is to be a Christian. Therefore, people who know Jesus want to be like Jesus. They follow Jesus. Those are the people who really get Jesus. And to say, I just believe in him, well, James tells us that even the demons believe in him. So question, what's the difference between your belief and a demon's belief? So the call to receive Christ is a call not just to believe certain truths. It's a call to believe those truths and to follow Christ with one's life. 
Secondly, I want you to see that being a follower of Jesus means that you've left other things behind. It means the call to be Jesus' disciple is an authoritative call. His call is immediate, unquestioning, and sacrificial. It means that you've left all your stuff behind and you've chosen to follow Him. It means that you have made a a decided commitment. I'm going to turn from this and I'm going to follow Him. So discipleship means an abandoning from all others with an exclusive claim and belief in Christ. It means that knowing about Jesus is not enough. Jesus bids people to follow him, to know him, to love him, and to be like him. So the question is, what have you left behind? What's the stuff that you've left behind? What are the things that you have said, I will follow Jesus and therefore I'm not going to go here, do this, My decision is immediately, I'm going to leave blank in order to follow Christ. For some of you, it's reputation. For some of you, it's been family. For some of you, it's been finances. Every month, you write a check and you give it to the church or some other good nonprofit cause. Give it to someone in need. And every month, you see that check and you have given thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars away. And you look at that, it's like, yeah, it just makes sense. Why? Because my heart belongs to Jesus. Therefore, I see everything through this lens of following Christ. I'm going to love people in risky ways. I'm going to choose to love the hard people in life like Jesus does. And even if it means doing risky things, I'm going to do it anyways, because that's what it means to follow Jesus. It means that I love Christ more than being comfortable. Comfort and security is killing following jesus in our culture it is and the minute the economy goes down or something hard happens we start freaking out because we as 21st century americans do not know what it means to serve christ without comfort and safety because that's why many of us signed up in the first place we don't want to go to hell we want to go to heaven we receive christ that's what it was that's not what it is It means that we choose to receive a Savior who invades our heart and takes over our life and says, follow me, be like me. And I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus' simple call, be like me, it drives me to my knees because I know I am so not like him. And so I want to know him and I want to love him so I can really be like him. In risky ways. I was trying to think of a risky decision that I've made in my lifetime. And there's some, let me tell you one, in seminary. My wife, while I was in seminary, was part of a, a catering company. And her, the chef that was in her catering company was an open homosexual. And he made no bones about it. And, oh, he was really uncomfortable around me as a seminarian. Because <laughs> he knew I was going to be a pastor. And he just automatically just... So I tried to love him as, as much as we could. And she developed a great relationship with him, became his friend. And in one of the proudest moments of my marriage with my wife, she came home and she said, Mark, this, the, the chef had, has asked if you and I will do something for him this weekend. And I said, okay, what is it? He said, um, over the weekend, he's going to have a party for all of his friends at his house that he's recently renovated and he'd like to know if you and I would be the host and hostess at the party. And it's on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. <laughs> and I think he was testing us. 
And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. So at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning when we used to get ready for church and go, and we instead of going to morning worship service, we went to a particular house and we stood in the front door and we shook the hands of hundreds of people outside our box and tried to do our very best to love them. And every, every time we did, I was reminded this is exactly where Jesus would want me today. But there was a sense within me of this guilt thing. I should be in church. I should be in church right now instead of here. This is weird. How come I'm here? And some people didn't understand. And I, I told the story in my last church, and, and, and people didn't always understand. How, how could you do that, go there instead of be at Sunday services? And some of you may even struggle with that today. And I'll just tell you that that's where I needed to be on that Sunday in order for me to be like Jesus. As risky as it sounds, I needed to be on that front step more than I needed to be sitting in a pew in order to really be like Jesus. And the question I would say is this, how many risky decisions like that have you made in your life? I would say not very many. And I just want to suggest that maybe, maybe there's something that's not so good about that. Maybe we need to look a little more carefully at what it means to be light in darkness and to make radical change to leave certain things behind like name and reputation and familiarity and what people think of us. Anyone else struggle with those things? Being a part of a church doesn't make those things go away. In fact, in some respects, it makes it harder. We have to work, beloved, to pop the bubble and to figure out what does it mean to really be like Jesus. I want to remind you that it was the religious establishment in Jesus' day that got it wrong. They got it wrong. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means light and darkness. It means a radical change. Here's the third thing. It means living the gospel in words and deeds. So, so here's what happens. Jesus starts his ministry, and I want you to see how Matthew introduces his ministry when he begins. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So notice that. There's three different things that Jesus does at the beginning. There's a teaching ministry in the synagogues. There's a preaching ministry in the gospel of the kingdom. And there's a healing. He's healing illnesses. Those are the three parts of what Jesus does. Let's unpack those. The first thing he does, he goes to the synagogue. The synagogue was the center of Jewish life for people who weren't residents of Jerusalem. There were these buildings that they built right after the Babylonian exile. When they came back to the nation of Israel, they built these synagogues, these places for study, to, to, to understand the law of God. They became cultural centers, places that, 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 that the law was administered, and a place where people learned about the relationship with God, the Jewish faith. And Jesus went to the synagogue, a place of learning to dialogue with people about spiritual matters. He went to the people and talked with them. we have any college students home from break? Home from school right now? Good, awesome. Listen, when you go to college, you are in the synagogues of our culture. Students there are talking about what they believe and about what you believe. It is an unbelievable opportunity. Do not think, when I grow up and get old, then I'll talk about Christ. No, you won't. <laughs> Just ask your mom and dad. No, you won't. Because there'll be a hundred reasons why you can't talk about it. Because now it's about your job and your boss and about your neighbors and keeping good faith and all this other stuff. So I'm just telling you, for those who are college students, you are in the synagogue. The opportunity to be able to talk about the cultural realities of our life and what you believe. The college environment is one of the most beautiful places for the platform of the gospel. Because people are open, they're talking. 
and they're raw. They'll just tell you what they think. And they'll have all these niceties like they have when you get out of college. Jesus went and he dialogued. He talked with the people. I want to encourage you to capitalize, folks, on lunch conversations, casual conversations with people. Talk about what they believe, what's going on. Enter the synagogue of our society and talk with them about what's going on in their soul. But there was another dimension. There was the dimension of proclamation. Here is the word for preaching. It means to herald. It's the idea of a town crier. This is not systematic teaching. This is an urgent appeal. This is forthright proclamation. Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel. The good news, that's what that word means. The good news of the kingdom. And the good news was that they were to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning that God is drawing near and if you receive the forgiveness that's offered to you, if you prepare your heart, when God comes, it will be good. If you're ready for him, when he draws near, then that will be a good thing. This is good news. It's good that God is drawing near if you are repentant. This is why Jesus declares his word because he wants people to know that God is coming near. So there's preaching, there's teaching, but I also want you to notice something really important. Notice that Jesus' ministry is holistic. Just think of this for a minute. I, I know you're probably familiar with this because you know your New Testament and you know that Jesus heals people. But why did Jesus heal people? You might say, well, he did so to prove that he was God. And I wouldn't say no to that, but I don't think that's the only reason that Jesus healed people. Jesus is not just content with content. He's not just content to say things. Jesus is there to help. As one commentator said, the first act of the Messiah is not the imposition of his commandments, but the giving of himself. The reason why the Son of God becomes human, the reason why He enters into the baptism, the reason why He's tempted, and the reason why He says, follow me, are all to take His message and put them in body form. And then He goes and heals people. The reason He does all of that is because He enters into humanity with this platforming of the message on the platform of help and compassion and healing and care. So Jesus comes as a liberator in the fullest sense of the word. His message and his ministry set people free. Jesus wasn't just concerned about their belief in him. He chose to bring about relief in their lives as well. Why did he do that? I want to suggest to you the reason he did was because of the power of the gospel. The gospel attacks sin at all levels. Here is the son who comes into the world to redeem this world and he sees and knows the ravaging effects of sin. He's going to bring the gospel. So how does the gospel attack sin at multiple levels? Let me show you. The gospel attacks sin first by bringing basic forgiveness. So it attacks sin in the presence of the world by bringing the opportunity for people to be right with their creator. 
Meaning that the only way you can be forgiven, if you've never heard this before, the only way for you to be right with your Creator is by receiving Christ because He's the only one who could pay for your sins. The Bible tells us we've all sinned, fallen short of God's glory, and the only way that you can be right with that Creator is for Christ, that the cross is all about, for Him to pay for your sin, and that establishes forgiveness. Ground zero of what the Bible is all about is this idea of forgiveness being possible for people who receive Christ. And the gospel, the good news, is that that it brings forgiveness. The second thing, though, is that the gospel changes people's hearts. So when you receive Christ and you become a follower of Him, now you see the world differently. You see that every evil, every ailment, every disease, the only reason that stuff is in the world is because of sin. It's the only reason why there is hurt and pain and three murders over the weekend in the Near East Side. The only reason why that stuff is in our city and in our nation and in our globe is because of the awful, damning effects of sin. And the gospel causes you to see it. You open up your newspaper, you see the evening news. You're not just grieved over the bad news. You know that that's there because of sin. Sin is an aberration. It's not normal. It's bad. And the gospel has come to eradicate it. And that's how you see life through this lens. But third, it means that one day, according to Revelation 21, there is this hope one day that Jesus will make everything right. That he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That the former things have passed away. And we know that one day Jesus is going to make it all right. Now listen. Followers of Jesus are the only people who think this way. We're the only people that see the world through this lens of evil is there because of the effects of sin. And the only answer to evil is the gospel. Therefore, it just makes sense that people who know and love the gospel should be the most concerned about the tragic effects of sin in the world. Unless they're incredibly selfish and they think the gospel is there just so they can know what's going to happen to them after they die. The reason the gospel is here and the reason you have the good news is not just to get you into heaven. The reason that you know and understand the gospel is to free your soul so you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and then love who? Your neighbor as yourself. That's why the gospel is there. It just makes sense that followers of Jesus would approach every Sunday with this thought. Jesus can change somebody's life today. It means that we wake up on Sunday and think, Jesus can change somebody today. That means if you've come and you have the most horrid past and behind the closet of your life, you have all of these wicked, awful things that nobody knows about, and you have this conscience that is just weighed down, I can tell you today with authority based upon the Scriptures that Jesus can change you today. More than any counseling, more than any program, more than any book, the Savior, Jesus, can change your life today. And that's that's what every Sunday's about. It also makes sense that the followers of Jesus would be the most concerned about what is happening in our culture, what's happening in our city. It makes sense that the followers of Jesus would be the most concerned about the needs of unborn children, that we would be the most concerned about the abuse and neglect of children and the elderly. It makes sense that racism and poverty would make us weep 
Why? Because we of all people know this is not the way God intended things to be. That we of all people can hear the groan of the universe of a world captured by sin. That we see the cultural malignancies that are in our land as a byproduct of a world captured under the spell of the evil one. And we long for the day when Jesus will come and set us free from this world of sin and death. We of all people know that Jesus has the ultimate answer for all these problems. That right now he can change all any of our hearts, and that He is the one who can make it right. So followers of Jesus know that they have to live the gospel in word and deed. Folks, we have to have both. Preaching alone is not the answer. Compassion alone is not the answer. But the church could be and is a powerful force for change and a beautiful instrument of God's glory when the content of the gospel collides with the compassion of the gospel. In other words, when people know you care, when they know you love them, when you know that you will accept them and, and, and help them to move from point A to point B, that you could give them the hope that they need, when there's this basic fundamental belief that I love you because God loved me when I was deep and mired in my sin. If we don't get that, then who in the world does? And this is what Jesus emulates. This is what Jesus' ministry is all about. This is what is so challenging to be like Jesus. This is what we know about Jesus. This is what we love about Jesus. This is what is so challenging about Jesus. And this is how he calls us to be. To love the unlovely, to give hope to the hopeless, to find the darkest regions of our culture, of our world, and say the light of the gospel has to go there. And so today I want to call you to be followers of Jesus, to be light in the middle of darkness, to be radical change agents, and to live out the gospel in word and in deed. I heard the story one time of a little boy who was walking to church with his mom, hand in hand with his mom, and and he saw the pastor walking up the side of the church parking lot, and she said to him, the little boy said to his mom, is that Jesus? And his mom said, oh no, honey, that's that's just our pastor. (laughs) And and the pastor who heard that thought, "Mm, oh, that it would be said this way. No, honey, that's, that's not Jesus. But he's awful close. If you know Jesus, you will love him. And if you know him, you will be like him. And if you are like him, you will be a follower of him. So, oh, men and women, we can never replace Jesus. But you know what? We can work a little harder, get on our knees more, and ask God by his spirit to help us to decide to be like him. So, yes, you can't be him, but God help us that we could be a little more like him. To love him to know Him, to be like Him, to follow Him. Father in heaven, we pray that You would give us an understanding of how we are to love like Your Son loved. To pour out risky love on people that are hard to love. Lord, there may be moms or dads today who know that the risky, hard person to love is in their home. 
And I pray today that you'd give them grace, new grace, to pick up the phone, to send an email, to send a text, something, to begin loving again. Lord, to follow you at work, in the neighborhood, college, at our job that we have for the summer, when everybody else seems like they're just doing everything else that doesn't fit with us. Lord, to love these folks is what you call us to do. So help us to have risky, Christ-centered love. The kind of love that we know cannot emulate from us. The only the kind of love that comes because we have said we will follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning